This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. A guest speaker is featured on this message. Arch Madness, and either you're disappointed or disappointed that no team from Texas made it into the tournament this year, or you're simply in the minority. Because, interestingly, the studies show that this past week, Thursday and Friday, which were the first two main uh, days of the tournament, uh, these past two days, uh, the U.S. economy is affected by $175 million because of distracted workers. 86% of workers will, uh, said, uh, his, and this happens every year, so it wasn't just this past Thursday and Friday, they admit to following the games or watching the games online. Um, or, I guess, in the break room on TV. 56% of them are going to invest at least one hour during the workday. And 33%, if you can believe it, do three hours during the day. So we've got a phenomenon that affects our economy, and CBS helps us do this, right? So CBS streamlines all these games, and if you'll notice the red circle up there, Craig, I'm telling you now, it's Thursday and Friday are past, but that's a boss button. And so CBS has provided us a button that if you click that button, Outlook comes up, and your your computer is muted, and uh, you can continue working. So if your coworkers or employees this week we're doing emails for most of the day. Um, that's why. So um, it works this week too. Friday, Saturday. <laughs> so just, just so you know. And I did that screenshot shot Saturday, Craig. So don't worry. Basketball is a simple game, though, of offense and defense, where one team attempts to score the most points against the other team. And while it's a simple game with a simple goal, during the actual 40 minutes in a college game, there are different strategies or different rules that teams have to take into consideration and affect the way that they play. So one of those is the 10-second rule, the rule that an offensive team, once they receive an inbounds, the inbounds pass, has 10 seconds to advance the ball past half court. And so for, for much of the game, the point guard freely takes the ball and dribbles the ball past half court, and then the defense begins to attempt to stop them from scoring. But when you watch basketball, likely you'll find late in the game or when a team is down and needs to uh, get more possessions, they put what they call a full court press. And so the defenders start defending as soon as the ball comes in to the offensive team. It takes a lot of energy. Guys don't like doing it. Uh, You've got to be in shape. But the opposing team would increase the intensity by putting on a full court press. And often this happens when a team feels that they are losing or the game is getting out of hand. In some ways they feel threatened. See, but the degree of the intensity of the defensive team doesn't change the rules. It's still 10 seconds. The the goal, the mission, is still to advance the ball past half court. The intensity changed. The goal hasn't. And I think that's... Kind of a a simple and silly picture of what we see in the book of Acts up to this point. See, in the first four chapters, we see that God in his his providence has has placed a mission on his people to be disciple makers. He has empowered them and he has sent them to be witnesses for him, to build his church, to accomplish his mission. And for the first four chapters, we see little to no true opposition to this mission. 
So what we have is we have uh, Pentecost where thousands uh, respond to Peter's preaching and, and we see people being healed. We see the demon possessed being freed. And in Acts chapter 4, we see the statement that more than ever, believers were added to the church with little to no recorded opposition. I'm going to trip on this thing. Little to no recorded opposition. But Acts chapter 5, where we're at this morning, Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 17, the landscape changes. The environment changes. The game is heating up. Starting in Acts chapter 5 and through the rest of Acts, we're going to see intense, increasing opposition to the mission of God to build his church. Intensity is increasing. Next, chapter 5 teaches us that even in the midst of increasing opposition and physical persecution, God has chosen to use obedient, dependent children to build his church. See, God's mission doesn't change, didn't change. God's purpose for his people didn't change, even in the midst of opposition. So for us today, regardless of the degree or nature of opposition, God calls and God empowers us to be disciple-making Christians. Let's pray and then jump into the text, Acts chapter 5. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege we have. We thank you that we live in a, live in a nation where we can come freely and hear your word, proclaim your word, read your word. We can own your word. And so, Lord, as we look at this passage in your word this morning, I ask that you'd speak to us. I pray that you would open our eyes, help us to see you, help us to see your power, help us to see the way that you affect and impact your people. Lord, speak to us. Convict us, challenge us, encourage us, do your work in us through your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, we do have 25 verses, as Craig said this morning. So, so what I thought might be helpful is to break that up into three different sections. I'm going to read verses 17 through 21. And I think we're going to see a similar pattern in each section of, these, uh, of this passage. And that pattern is opposition, an increasing opposition to the apostles. We're going to see obedience from the apostles. And we're going to see the power of God or the presence of God in the life of the apostles. So keep those in mind as we go through these sections. Chapter 5, follow along as I read, starting in verse 17. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. See, verse 17, as Luke writes, he's following what we read in in verses 12 through 16 of the continuing mission of the apostles. See, the apostles in chapter 4 were commanded by the council, the same group of people, the high priest and the council, to stop proclaiming the name of Jesus. But the apostles continued. And what we see in chapter 5, verse 14, that more than ever believers were added 
to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. We see that the sick were healed, the demon-possessed were freed. So as we can imagine, the council who had commanded them to be silent sees that more than ever, ever, the multitudes are following these apostles. And Luke identifies their emotion. What caused them to act was jealousy. See, the high priests, the leaders had negative thoughts and feelings of insecurity, of fear, of anxiety. They, they were anxious over losing something that they valued. See, they were hostile towards arrival. They were hostile towards the apostles and because they believed that they were gaining an advantage. They were vigilant, and we'll see even more and more through the books of Acts, more and more vigilant in guarding a possession. What was it that they were jealous of? What prompted this jealousy? Well, we saw it's the response of the people, and these leaders held both a religious and political position in the community. Under the Roman rule, they, they were able to rule in their community. And so the idea is that if the multitudes are following Jesus, Jesus, who is proclaimed as the Messiah, as the king, Rome would view this as a revolt. And if a revolt happens against Rome, what leaders are going to be deposed? The high priest and the council. And so there's a political reason, but there's also a religious reason. These guys held temple responsibilities um, there in Jerusalem. And so the activity moving from the temple to house to house, the churches of those who were believers, threatened the temple activity. So they were fearful. They were insecure. They were anxious. And this is a re- emotion that we can relate to. That we have something, we own something, we become insecure or anxious or fearful that we are going to lose that thing that we value. Or on the other side, we're jealous that someone else has a position or a status or a relationship or freedom from their parents or or freedom that their parents have given that we don't have or financial flexibility. And we see that someone else has something that we would like and we can move from being irritated and bothered to being jealous. To being hostile. And that's the, that's the increasing hostility that this group of men had. In Acts chapter 4, verse 2, the first time the council interacts with the apostles, Luke tells us that they were simply annoyed. They were greatly annoyed. They were bothered. The apostles at that point were getting on their nerves. But now they realize the apostles were threatening them. The intensity is increasing. In elementary school, I'm sure it was in elementary school, I don't know when, but we all learned the Newton's third law of motion, right? For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And one commentator on Acts said that there's seemingly a spiritual law of action. That for every exertion of supernatural power for good, there's an equal and opposite reaction for supernatural evil. Many coming to know Christ, ministry of the apostles, people being healed and freed, and then increasing opposition from the enemy. And what we see here with the obedience of the apostles to preach Jesus and the opposition is we we have an opportunity for the power of God to be seen. 
Opposition brings us an opportunity to see the power of God. It's not that the power of God is not present in opposition, but oftentimes a position of seemingly obvious, complete dependence causes us to see the power of God. And the apostles couldn't miss it here in verses 19 and 20 because they're sitting completely dependent on the floor of a public prison. They had been arrested. The jealousy moved these leaders to arrest them and to throw them into prison. And so they're sitting there completely dependent, unable to advance the mission of God, unable to preach the gospel, unable to heal the sick, completely dependent. And again, their their dependence doesn't change because they're in prison, but they're well more aware of their dependency because of their situation. And again, I think for us, we can relate to that. There are times where we find ourselves in an obvious, complete state of dependency, where it's, where it's obvious. Even we can't miss it. It's obvious. And at those times, we hear ourselves crying out to God or, or communicating to God that if, if you're going to do something, you know, it's going to be you. I've done everything that I've could. I've done this. I've said this. I've communicated your your message to so and so. But God, it's going to be you. And and that's a, a not a comfortable position to be in. It's not a comfortable circumstance to be in. But it's a good one because in those times we often are able to recognize and see God's power. And the power of God shows up through an angel here and supernaturally rescues them. Luke tells us that he opened the prison doors. How he did this without the guards seeing, we don't know. But supernaturally, God delivered them. God rescued them. His power and his presence was clear. But his purpose for doing this was not for them to go and be comfortable. It wasn't for them to go and hide. It was at the same time to go and to preach the gospel. He tells them to go into the temple and to speak to all the people the message, the words of this life. You know, we, we sang this morning, the giver of life. Luke here kind of uses a play on words of, of the message of life referring to Jesus, the message of Jesus. And, and the resurrection, the life, Jesus being killed and resurrected was something that the Sadducees, these leaders, did not believe. And so the angel says, I'm going to deliver you and I'm going to go tell you to go preach in existence. Go preach the name of Jesus, the exact opposite of what your opposition believes. Go preach the message of life. Preach the name of Jesus. And so what do the apostles do? In verse 21, when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak. So seemingly middle of the night, they were freed. The next morning, they go and they begin to teach. They were obedient. In one way, we could look at this and say it's pretty, of course they went and preached. I mean, an angel of the Lord, I mean, supernaturally, God came and and told them to go do that. Of course they're going to obey. In addition, we often look at these apostles as kind of Christian heroes, where we look at them and we look at their boldness and we look at their tenacity and we're we're in awe of what they accomplished here in the book of Acts on, on God's mission. And we say, of course they Of course they obeyed. But in Acts chapter 4, the council interviewed these guys. They sat in front of them and they questioned them. And this is how they described them. 
common, ordinary, uneducated. These guys weren't special. These were ordinary men. So how is it that we are in awe of the tenacity, that we're in awe of the boldness? I think scripture throughout the the Gospels and throughout Acts shows us that these were affected men. These were gripped men. These are men who had met Jesus, who were affected by Jesus. They were affected by the years they spent walking with Jesus during his life and his ministry. They were gripped by the, the events of the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. See, they were gripped by the, by the illumination that they received. It's recorded in Matthew 16 that, that Jesus asked, Who do you think that I am? And Peter says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. His eyes were supernaturally open to who Jesus was, who Jesus is. They were gripped by the sending forth, the commissioning of them to do God's work, to be disciple makers. They were gripped by that. We saw in earlier in Acts that they were gripped by the by Pentecost and the receiving of the Holy Spirit. They were gripped by the power that the Holy Spirit gave them, the courage to preach Jesus, the power to heal the sick, to free the demon-possessed. I mean, these men have been experiencing Jews who have been waiting for years for a Messiah, who, their eyes being opened, and that more than ever, believers were being added to the church. This gripped them. This affected them. This gave them power. See, in short, Jesus, his power and his calling on their their life affected these men. They were gripped in such a way that they could, that they couldn't help but speak of Jesus. That's how much they were gripped. See, the obedience of the apostles, it's not suggested to be a result of the strong commitment to Jesus or their strong constitution. Their obedience stems from their relationship with God. Their obedience stems from the power of God through the Holy Spirit, which they received because of their relationship with God through Jesus. This morning, for each one of us, Probably the most important thing is how we answer the question, how have I been affected by Jesus? How am I gripped by Jesus? First and most importantly, have I been affected by the truth of who Jesus is? The truth of his life, death, resurrection? Has that gripped me? Has that affected me? Has that changed me? Has that caused me to repent and to turn to him? Has has that gripped me? Am I affected by the calling, the subsequent calling that he has on my life? Am I affected by the power and the grace that he has given me to fulfill that calling through the Holy Spirit that indwells in me? Am I gripped by that? Am I gripped by the good news of the gospel in such a way that I can't help but speak of Jesus? How is Jesus, how is the gospel gripping us today? First and foremost, it must grip us in a way that we realize our need for Jesus. And then it must grip us in a way that we can 
do nothing but without Jesus, and that he has called us to a life advancing his mission. We must be gripped by Jesus. And the apostles were gripped. They were obedient because they were gripped by Jesus and the power that comes with that. So does my boldness, does my tenacity, does my commitment, does it reflect a life that's gripped by Jesus? Or, or has time has time dulled that, that gripness? Has, has time dulled that affection? For many of us, the illumination of who Christ is happened some 10, 20, 30 years ago. And our, our affection, our, the effect of that on our lives has been has been dulled. And for the apostles here, this was, this was months and years. It's not a vast amount of time, but they were freshly affected by what God was doing. So we see opposition. We see it's increasing from chapter 4. The power of God comes. The presence of God comes and supernaturally frees and delivers them. And, and the apostles are obedient to the commands of the angel. And so as we continue to read in chapter 5, verse 21 through 28, we're going to see the same pattern. We're going to see opposition, we're going to see obedience, we're going to see the power and the presence of God. So follow along, beginning in the middle of verse 21. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported. This is what they said. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So the opposition was jealous. They arrested and threw him into prison, the apostles into prison. Yet God disrupted that opposition. He freed them. And of course, the opposition was not too happy about this, nor were they thrilled to find that the apostles were once again preaching the name of Jesus. Multitudes following them. Their opposition once again intensifies here Uh, compared to chapter 4 when they simply brought them in and questioned them. Now they're bringing formal charges. They're bringing formal charges against them for not obeying their command to be silent. They disregarded the council's command. And so because of formal charges, 
It seems here that the apostles have an opportunity to speak, an opportunity to defend. And it's no surprise that Peter speaks up and leads the defense for the apostles. His defense is simple. Verse 29. We must obey God rather than men. We must obey God rather than men. While his defense is simple and his explanation, as we're going to see, is short, it is powerful. See, here we see the obedience of the apostles in preaching the true message of of Jesus regardless of their audience. See, here they're standing before a council who hated the name of Jesus, and they unapologetically proclaim the true, exclusive message of Jesus. They say, we must obey God. And they kind of connect with the council here by by calling them the God of our fathers. So they're connecting and saying, hey, you're Jewish men, we're Jewish men. This is the God that we're obeying is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God God you want to obey, obey. you're a God-fearing man. This This is the God we're obeying. But here's where their defense turns. They said, not only is he the God of our Father, but he is the God who sent Jesus. The God who raised Jesus, yes, the Jesus that you killed. Yes, the God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one he sent to be the Messiah, you killed him. But he raised him up. And not only did he raise him from the dead, but he exalted him at his right hand, a place of authority. He exalted him as leader, as king, as prince. He is exalted. You killed him, but God raised him up and exalted him as king and exalted him as savior. See, God sent Jesus to be the fulfillment of his plan for redemption. To bring forgiveness of sins, to bring repentance for his people. What a message. A powerful message, an exclusive message. A message that claims Jesus to be God's Messiah. And it's a message that offends Offends these council members, ones who did not believe in the resurrection, did not believe Jesus was the Messiah, the ones who saw to it that Jesus was killed. And see, this message has been an an offensive message for years, for 2,000 years. It's an offensive message. The exclusive message of Jesus is offensive. To, to make a claim that God provided one way through his son, Jesus Christ, for the redemption of sins, to be reconciled with God the Creator, is an offensive message. In fact, every one of us, at some point in our lives, were offended by that message. Today, that message may hit you as offensive. and I trust that, that the message of Jesus would though at one moment be an offensive message, at one moment would be an offensive name, would be a hated message, at the next moment would be a hopeful message. That the power of God would work, that the Holy Spirit would work in your heart 
and see that the name of Jesus, the message of Jesus, is a hopeful message. It's a message of reconciliation. It's a message of redemption. Yes, it's a message that we are helpless. Yes, it is a message that we are completely dependent. It's a message that we cannot be reconciled to God on our own. But it's a message that the God who created us loved us so much that he sent his only son to redeem us, to bring forgiveness, to bring deliverance. It's a message of provision. I trust that you'll hear that this morning, that the message of Jesus is a message of provision. Like the apostles in prison, the gospel finds us completely dependent. Completely helpless. Sitting on the floor, unable to deliver ourselves. But it's a message of hope. God doesn't leave us there. He provides us Jesus to deliver us, to grant us forgiveness and repentance. And the apostles here show the power of God in their life and the presence of God in their life through the courage to preach this message in spite of the audience. Courage certainly is needed as we proclaim the message of Jesus to those that we love, to to those that are antagonistic to the message. And the source of their power, the source of the presence of God, the apostles show us in verse 32, after claiming at the end of their defense that they are witnesses, both eyewitnesses, I mean, they were there through the events of Jesus in his life, but they're also mouthpiece witnesses. They're, they're, they've been commissioned to go and be witnesses. Acts 1.8, as we saw very early in this series. And they connect us, and they tell us here that not only are we witnesses, but so is the Holy Spirit who God has given to them who obey. So their dependence, their reliance is upon the Holy Spirit who they recognize that God has given to them as they obey. Now, what is the obedience talking about here? I think this is, this is a, a, an important point. We won't, won't stay here long, but it's an important point. The, the Holy Spirit does, is not given to those who consistently and, and daily obey God. That's not the obedience here reference. It's not an obedience of, of continual adherence to God's command. The obedience here is referring to the repentance that is called for for salvation. So, so Peter here is simply saying, That for those who repent of their sins and trust in Christ, that's who God gives the Holy Spirit to. And so so in that sense, we are the same as the apostles. We have the same Holy Spirit, access to the same God who has given that Holy Spirit, the same power, the same gifts. We can have the same courage, we can have the same boldness if we feed off the same person, the Holy Spirit. The one who empowers us. And they knew, they knew the reality of their complete dependency on God. And in verse, uh, and again, this just should be encouraging to us. I, th- I think we can be encouraged by this. That even as we read of the continuing obedience and the boldness and the tenacity of the apostles, and we think, man, I didn't, I didn't act that way this week. I didn't respond to opposition in the way that they did, that we have access to the same Holy Spirit. 
We've been given the Holy Spirit. The power and the courage and the gifts are available to us as we seek to be obedient, dependent, disciple-making Christians. And so the text concludes with the final ten verses, again with this pattern of opposition, increased opposition, the power and the presence of God, and the obedience of the apostles. Verse 33. When they, the council, heard this, the defense of Peter and the apostles, they were enraged, very angry, and they wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up claiming to be someone, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, in the case of these apostles, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail, but if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing. The apostles left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. The defense of the apostles caused the council to be very angry. The intensity of the opposition moves from jealousy and arrest and thrown in prison to wanting to kill them. Likely that wasn't their intent when they arrested them, but being offended by the message of Jesus and the commitment of the apostles to preach that message, they wanted to get rid of these guys. And God's presence and God's power is shown, again, not explicitly through an angel here, but we see that God clearly protects his people. And he protects them in an interesting way. The first way is he used an unbeliever, a man within the council, who gave unbiblical advice or flawed reasoning to save their lives. See, Gamaliel is nowhere indicated in Scripture that he's a secret follower of Christ who is used by God to advance the mission of God from kind of behind uh, the enemy walls. Uh, We'll read later that Gamaliel was actually Saul's teacher. And Saul is the Pharisee who uh, we'll see in chapter 6, 6, 7, 8, 9, we'll see his opposition to the followers of Christ and those preaching the gospel before God redeems him, saves him miraculously, changes his name to Paul and uses him to continue the advancement of the mission. So 
We have no reason to think that Gamaliel was here acting as a follower of Christ or on God's team. But God used him anyway. God used false reasoning. And we won't spend a lot of time here, but the idea that we can look at the effects of a a movement and decide if it's of God or not based upon its success is flawed. And there's false religions, there's there's um, movements that are bad, that are anti-God, that seemingly have success. So the success or failure of a movement or of a message does not mean that message is necessarily of God or not of God. But God used this man and this message and, and this process to protect them from being killed because he had a plan to use them, to continue to use them in the advancement of his gospel. He also protects them even as they were physically beaten. I think often we think of protection in protecting from the circumstances that cause us pain or that cause us hurt. We think there's protection and then like abandonment. And if if I go through something difficult, that I'm in the, the camp of abandonment as opposed to even in those times seeing the presence of God in protection. And so here, the punishment that they received was being um, whipped likely 39 times with, with a rope that on the edges had sharp objects, metal or glass tied to them. And the point of that was to whip the bear back and that, piece, that object would go into their skin and it would be ripped and they would be lacerated and bleeding. And oftentimes the organs would be exposed. And though not the intent, and in fact, I believe forbidden, um, they that they would not die, but there were times that people died from it. So God protected them, even as they were physically beaten. God protected them in that they were able to rise up and go and preach, having just received this terrible beating. So God's presence is here. God's power is here. I think it's evident also in the perspective that they have, their response to the trial. Response to the persecution. One of the most eye-opening statements in this passage is that they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer. Yes, they had sat under Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, where he said, "Rejoice, um, rejoice when you suffer persecution. But... In the moment of persecution, at the time of suffering, it is only divine power of God through the Holy Spirit in our lives that allows us to respond that way, to rejoice. Their reaction was rejoicing. Their perspective was honor to be dishonored. Again, I think this can encourage us because we have the same Holy Spirit. We have the same grace of God, the same power of God that that is available to us when we, when we in, encounter increased hostility. And while for most of us this will never look like physical persecution, it doesn't make it any less real. And our response that we can have through the power of God is rejoicing through and because of that suffering The apostles continued to obey in verse 42 at the last verse of this passage. They continued to preach. They continued to teach. 
They continued to faithfully teach the the true message of Jesus Christ. Even in spite of increasing opposition. You know, on the basketball court, that point guard is the one responsible to bring the ball past half court. He's the likely the little guy who is good at dribbling. Most point guards are. I was a point guard that wasn't. Um, who's responsible to bring the ball past half court. That's his responsibility. And for most of the game, he faces no opposition. And let me tell you, point guards prefer that. They prefer to be able to casually walk up the court and set up their offense. But every point guard has to be prepared. They have to be prepared for the full court press. They have to be confident in their preparation and confident in their ability to execute that which the coach has commissioned them to do, because if not, they're on the bench next to the coach. See, as disciple-makers, we prefer the vast majority of our time to be in the first four chapters of Acts. Yes, to be on mission. Yes, to be proclaiming Jesus Christ. Yes, to be used by God but with little or no opposition. We, we prefer that. We want to live there. We want to see people come to know Jesus. We want to see lives changed. And we like that there's little to no opposition. But we should expect to face opposition. The degree or the nature of that op- opposition is to be determined and will likely be different for all of us. For those of us who stay in the States, it will likely not reach physical persecution, but for those who move to Cameroon or North Africa or Iran, might very well face physical persecution. And different than a point guard whose confidence is in his ability, whose confidence is in his uh, preparation, our confidence is not in ourselves. And so as we, as we hear this morning that even in the midst of opposition, even in the midst of increased hostility, God still calls us, God still intends to use us to be disciple makers for him. We ought to leave here. God would have us to realize that we ought to be confident in him, in his power. See, God wants us to be confident in Him. So we need to be confident in God's call on our life, that He's called us to share the message of Jesus, to share the message of life to others, to be confident in the power and the presence of God that's in our life. We, we, we can't say it enough. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the power of God to enable us to have courage, to have tenacity, to have commitment, to have boldness. We must be confident in Him, not in ourselves. May our confidence be in God this morning. Which God? As the disciples, as the apostles said, the God who raised Jesus. The God who provided for us reconciliation. God who has given us the Holy Spirit, who has given us power. This morning, may we ask God to help us to see our complete dependency and to look to Him, the giver 
of good gifts, the giver of life, the giver of the Spirit. May we look to God, even in times of hostility, and depend on His grace, depend on His power. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org. Thank you.